tetragrammaton. painting, you just go art, art, art. And then you see comedy and people go, eh, art, craft, is it? But I feel so grateful that you're also someone who is so versed in comedy and so obsessed with comedy that I feel like I can actually call it an art around you when I don't feel like I can really do that with other people. It absolutely is. A, it's a magnificent art. When did you start getting, I mean, I imagine you've always been a fan of comedy. Like, you know, everyone's heard you talk about music. Not a lot of people have heard you talk about comedy and I'm just fascinated. Comedy's always been a big part of my life, starting with my second love of recorded things was comedy. So when I was really little, it was the Beatles. But then before I started listening to hard rock, I'd only listened to comedy albums for years. Do you remember the first one you... I don't remember the first one, but I remember like loving George Carlin. Mm. It, there was a, one was called AM and FM, one was called Class Clown. Those were the classics. I also had one from before that, but I don't remember what it was called. And it was, he hadn't yet found his, his uh, hippie voice. He was sort of the straighter comedian in his earlier work. I think you mean he hadn't discovered cocaine yet. <laughs> <laughs> and Cheechin Chong and uh, Bob Newhart and Bill Cosby and... Um, Richard Pryor, Rodney Dangerfield, mm. all of the greats. Did you watch TV much in your home growing up, comedy? I did. I watched TV pretty constantly. Me too. And yeah. I um, I think for me, like such a big part of wanting to be a comedian was watching my parents, you know, um, you know, struggle with alcoholism, distractions, an acrimonious, very pugnacious upbringing, very chaotic. And they would walk by the TV and stop and look. That was the thing that could get their attention. I would mm. see my dad, I couldn't get my dad's attention. I couldn't get him to you know, look at me, talk to me, but I'd watch him watching Three's Company and I'd watch how hard he was laughing. And I'd be like, I gotta get in there. Like I gotta get in that box. That's amazing. What's so great about that box? Yeah. And then I looked in the box and actually the first thing that made me wanna be funny were commercials. Cause I was watching commercials. Like I wasn't really able to understand a lot of the TV stuff when I was super, super young. You know, we watch, you know, Married with Children is still one of my favorite sitcoms of all time. By the way, rewatch it now. It is so, it like for all you PC dorks, like go back and it is just so sexist. It's, it's an incredible show. It gets better every- it's a, it's a revolutionary show. As is Martin. I mean, Martin was my favorite sitcom ever. It's really what made me go like, oh, I want to write comedy. I want to make these little mini plays, you know? And this is, it was the first time I was like, oh, this improves upon a solo person doing their performance. Maybe it's because he was also doing Shanae He was playing other parts, et cetera. But I saw commercials and I saw these happy families in commercials. Of course, now we know it's, you know, bullshit nonsense, but I kind of was like, oh, I got to go in there. That's where the happy families are, you know? But then uh, I saw Roseanne. And Roseanne was a, felt like a mirror to my experience. It was, they were talking about being poor. You know, Roseanne would make fun of her kids. You know, they would make fun of each other. They would roast each other. And it made me go, oh, maybe the way we talk to each other isn't emotional abuse. Maybe it's just, this is love, you know? So I got all my information, all my programming from television and from music. I got almost none from parents. And luckily, not a lot from schools either. So I feel, you know, as we as you know, we talk about your book and creativity, and, and so much of your book is about how to 
in a lot of ways, take control of your creativity and, and to be able to harness creativity and, and um, conjure it. What are the parts of creativity that you feel like are not something, you know, you can necessarily have power over or the things that you're predisposed to have that's just kind of, for lack of a better word, luck, where I think a lot of people might not see it that way? An example for me would be trauma. I feel like I, you know, I call it trauma privilege. No one should intentionally inflict trauma on their children just so that they're hypersensitive and hypervigilant and really observant and creative, et cetera. But I had a tremendous amount of trauma. Um, you know, I've talked about it being, you know, molested, abused, neglected. Neglect has been a huge part of me being creative because I was alone so much as a kid. I had to uh, engage in fantasy, this like really rich, inter I would interview myself. I would write plays and perform all the parts, you know, is a, is a, you know, a confluence of boredom and also needing to escape my reality. And I see a lot of kids today, you know, obviously escaping the reality, maybe in other ways. Are there any things that happened in your childhood or circumstances where you're like, ah, at the time I didn't realize that was almost like a, a creative gift or at the time it felt like a limitation and now I see that it was a gift? I think the, the first big gift was coming from where I came from. I was outside of Manhattan, not in Manhattan, and I was close enough to be able to experience the world of culture, but not be of the world of culture. And that was a helpful place to be. S same as Tim Dillon, actually. We came from towns right next to each other. And Bob Iger as well is from the same Oh, that's town. fascinating. Yeah. Because do you feel like if you grew up in the city, you know, it's interesting. I, I know a lot of people that grew up in New York, New York City, and there's the sense of, we had this all available to us, so why make it yourself? Yeah, there's also a, a snobbery that comes with being in that place. And and I wanted it. Like as a kid, I wanted to be there. Mm -hmm. That's where I wanted to be. Yes. So the kids who were there knew what was cool. I didn't know what was cool because I was like essentially from the, it was the suburbs, but compared to Manhattan, it was the country. <laughs> yes. And in in that place, we were free to experience the world as it was versus through the eyes of what's cool, what's in style, what's in vogue. We didn't really have that mm -hmm. in on the island. It was like a little beach town and everybody was cool. To, you know, surfing was what people were interested in there. Do you surf? I don't surf, but I body surf. I feel like as I've, as I get older, metaphors work better for me. I think the older I get, you know, and I'm in a highly verbal profession, the more I feel like words fail. Words are so imperfect. I almost feel like words is where society starts to fall apart <laughs> when we start, because different words mean different things to different people. You know, I don't have to tell you, we're at a time where words right now are getting people fired. You know, words have so much more power than they deserve to. And I almost feel like we peaked at sonar, you know, dolphins and sonar, you know, it just feel, you can't, you know, take it out of context, you know, you know, in my podcast, I, I do this silly thing, bop, bop, bop. I just, it's something that I would yell at the coyotes because I, you know, work so much with animals and animal behavior. They're not verbal pretty much at all. It's mostly body language. And I think humans forget that we're mostly body language too. And, um, and, and energetic as well, like being in the same room, we feel each other's energy. It's different than, you know, we can sit here with our eyes closed and have a deep, communion without saying a word. Like I pulled up to your place today and 
I got out and I, I didn't even really say like, you know, it's to be around someone that understands the value of just your energetic presence and your body language. I was like, you know, running a little bit late because of course I, I overthought, you know, I'm going to force you to watch the movie Labyrinth at some point. I'm going to kidnap you and make you watch it because so much of that movie is about how, you know, our expectations for something are always so overcomplicated and we tend to not just default to the simplest solution. We want to sort of go to the most complex for whatever reason. Maybe we grew up and the solutions were very complex. There was never simplicity. You know, I couldn't just say to my mom, can I have something to eat? You know, if I said, mom, can I have something to eat? I would trigger her you know, insecurities and borderlines and all these diagnoses, they are what they are. But, you know, she was very mercurial and would get very emotional and feel guilty if I asked for something. Oh, I'm not a good enough mother for you. Like, I don't have enough food for you. I'm busy, you know. Defensive. Everything was very complicated. And so as an adult, you know, being a comedian, it's actually behooved me because comedians, we tend to overcomplicate very simple things for comedic value. So even though at the time that was, you know, incredibly painful and shut me down, as a child and made me very reserved and, you know, um, trepidatious around people, especially women as an adult. I drove past the entrance to your house and it was just uh, this a very simple door with hedges. And then I, there was another one next to it with these huge pillars. And <laughs> even though the address wasn't the same, I kind of was like, well, it must be this one. I didn't even see the simple entrance, you know? So when I came in, I had a little bit of embarrassment and I was like kind of rushing and, I knew whatever I say in this moment is going to feel like a lie or placating someone. Or We use words, I think, when in moments like that, when we don't believe the person we're around is perceptive enough to feel what our energy is. Because usually what we're saying is just bullshit and it's incongruous with, with what we're actually giving off. Yeah, it's interesting that you felt obligated to say anything at all. That's the deal. I think in, we're living in a society where it's just, we fill silence with drivel and words because I think eye contact, intimacy, I think, you know, I'm not a, you know, ask Huberman or someone who's smarter than me about this, but you know, I know I grew up <laughs> in, in an alcoholic home where, you know, uh, youngest where, you know, George Haas is who I've trained with for meditation. I wish I had the brain of yours and that transcendental meditation was something I could have done yet. I'm not there yet. I have my bird brain, my like monkey brain wants to jump around. So I don't know. You're, you're very down on yourself. I don't see that. A comedian, a female comedian. I can't. <laughs> I mean, you can say it if it's funny, but I, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Here's, well, here's the great thing about being negative as a comedian, that when you see all the negative comments, you don't have to feel bad because you just agree with them. That's my new life hack. <laughs> Let me ask you, so you seeing that I'm negative about myself, does that like stress you out? Is that not so? Because musicians are the opposite. They're like, I'm the best. I, you know, I'm obsessed with, you know, like rap is a big art that that programmed me. And uh, I was working on a joke once about rappers. There's, They're all number one. I'm number one. It's like someone's got to be number two. I mean, there's a billboard chart. Like you can't all be number one. Like I'd love to meet the rapper who's like the humble rapper who's like, I'm number four and I'm just going to work harder. And eventually I feel like I'll be number one, you know? <laughs> so I feel like you deal with a, a tremendous amount of confidence. With it's the funny. I gave you a compliment and you took it as an insult. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. I'm a witch. It's amazing. <laughs> it's like, wow, how did she get that out of that? 
<laughs> well, then I need to be, you know, I'm very sensitive about listening to music because I know how impactful it is on my psyche. You know, I didn't listen to music a lot as a kid. There wasn't music in my home. Was there music in your home just playing all the time? I played music on it. I had a record player in my room, so I played music constantly. Either records or the radio. I listened to the radio a lot as a kid too. It wasn't playing all over the house, but it was playing in my room all the time. And when you first were listening to music, you know, was it background or were you, would you listen? Because I would sit and listen. I couldn't do other things when I was listening to music. Like I remember. Both. I, I would sit and listen when I was sitting, sitting and listening. But when I wasn't, I would still listen a lot. I would listen a lot and do other things. I, you know, look, it's the jury's out whether we can actually multitask. But, you know, I tend to do many things at once. But when I'm listening to music, I tend to have to really sit and listen. Almost. That's a great way to listen. That's the best way to listen. And I also think as an artist, I mean, I've always thought this, you know, maybe because things did not come easily to me as a child where when, and I didn't have a lot of socialization, you know, I like to say I'm kind of feral, which, you know, I think a lot of staying a good artist sometimes is figuring out how to keep yourself feral in a way. And school is something that you have to fight really hard, you know, to not let break your spirit. Mm -hmm. I think so much of a parent's job is to just protect children from letting the world break them. But I remember listening to music and thinking, and people would be doing other things. And I'm like, the music, someone's talking. You know what I mean? Like someone put work into this. Someone, you know, and I, I got so frustrated when music would play as a kid and people would be doing other things. And I think that's, as I look back, that is something that I guess would be defined. You know, I was always pathologized as neurotic, as, you know, a bleeding heart. What would you identify that as? Well, let me ask you, have you ever gone on stage where people are talking and how do you, what happens? Being a female comedian, the first five years is mostly people talking through your whole set, going like ordering as soon as you go on stage. That's their cue to order drinks, go feed their meter. You know, I remember I joke with, uh, you know, comics all the time is, you know, when I started 15 almost 18 years ago, I guess, they didn't even know how to bring on a comedian. I mean, there were a couple already, but it was always, are you guys ready for a lady? <laughs> Which is like, why would you even give them a heads up that a lady's coming on? Because then you would just, they get their wallets out, they go to the bathroom, go feed the meter. So yes, and I am not sure if this is a nature or nurture thing. I'm not sure if, you know, because I think one of my main questions for you is how much of being a great musician, great artist, is innate or at least channeling your, I just like to call them superpowers, ancestral superpowers, products of ancestral trauma. Growing up in an alcoholic home, I have incredible hearing. You know, I've been diagnosed with misophonia, which is also part of the reason I try to not be too aggressive on the microphone because I know a lot of people are just listening to this and that audio, jarring audio things. Are, I mean, I one time I had an actor come on my podcast and he was hungry and started eating nuts. I lost like 3,000 subscribers and I didn't blame them. You know, it's like hearing jarring noises in the night, such, you know, there's an anger comes up, you know, and then I was diagnosed with synesthesia of I tend to see like words in color and I see jokes in color. It's cool. You know, it's so cool. Yeah. Did you have any growing up things that, you know, learning stuff, you know, I was diagnosed with dyslexic, ADD, you know, I think a lot of the great artists at a very young age now probably are, you know, put on drugs, diagnosed as, you know, all of these things. Did you have any of those experiences growing up? 
I would say I always felt like I didn't fit in, but I wasn't diagnosed with things. But the reason that I learned to meditate was because of my doctor was cool enough to recognize that the pain I was feeling was from stress. So that's why I got learned to meditate when I was young. Can you believe that that's not taught in schools? I mean, obviously we have to, but... It's available to everyone to learn, so we can all do it. <laughs> but then you have to go on your computer and look at a YouTube t uh, tutorial to learn how to meditate. And by then, there's ads. And then you're every time I try to go on YouTube to try to like get some kind of inner peace from a guru, I get distracted by nine. You go to buy something now, and if you don't put it in your cart, and you don't pay for it, it'll chase you around to every website for like two weeks. Do you even go online? I go online, but not. I don't shop or do anything like that. Okay, I have many questions for you. <laughs> okay. I'm going to keep this very, you know, random. I mean, if I'm looking for a specific thing, I'll find the thing I'm looking for. I'll do a little research about what's the best one of these things, whatever it is. I just feel like you don't live like the rest of us, Rick. I do not live I'm, like the rest of you. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say it. For sure. That is, that is the case. Very, like, so, because I think that in, in your position, you know, I think musicians, I'm going to make a huge generalization. I'm a comedian. That's my job. That sequestering yourself from the world, I think is what keeps, you know, musicians sensitive, you know, keep, because, you know, we're, I think it's safe to say that artists are, tend to be whatever, highly sensitive people. You know, I, if I see a Roomba get stuck under a couch, I get like emotional, like it hurts my heart. You know, there's an app that will tell you if your Roomba's stuck and I'll like go home and get it. <laughs> It's like I, you know, but as a comedian, I obviously come off very hard and brusque and rough and I've got that armor and I, you know, the biggest challenge I think for a comedian is. Do you feel bad for the Roomba? I am anthropomorphizing the Roomba because it does have a little bit of animal. It feels like a little, it looks like a baby thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure the other half is projection of feeling like I, I've felt stuck. And when I feel stuck, that's the worst feeling when. Ah, uh, you're the Roomba. I'm <laughs> I'm the Roomba Rick. <laughs> also, he doesn't live like the rest of us. Like, what's a Roomba? <laughs> My house is just magically cleaned by. I feel like your your home is cleaned by like birds carrying James Purse cloths or something. Um, but I do. It's funny. Every piece of clothing I wear is from James Purse. I have your number, Rick. Every piece of clothing. I have a whole plan to live like you at some point, but as a comedian, there's certain things that I feel like the trajectory of a lot of my heroes is when they start getting financially solvent, comfortable, they start removing themselves from society and the very species that they're supposed to be one with. You know, I pride myself on as a comedian being a comedian of the people and understanding, you know, what they're going to want me to talk about, what truth they're going to want me to speak to power, what, you know, the day-to-day -day struggles are. So I'm like, I flew Spirit Airlines last month. How was that? It was like, I can't believe Joe Rogan wasn't calling every movement. It, there were two fights on the plane wow. in the back. Wow. Just watching sort of what, you know, look, you have to understand the lives of the people you're entertaining, I believe, as a comic. And I never want to only be entertaining a certain echelon of people. I also come from nothing, you know. I come from Appalachia. And, you know, I think, you know, seeing, I don't know if you've seen artists, like, kind of start out and then you want to sort of divorce yourself from your roots, you know. I, like, lost the accent, only said I'm from D.C. and Virginia because I also grew up in Washington, D.C. and rural Virginia. And I kind of pretended I wasn't from there, came out to L.A. because there's such a, you know, we talk about racism, sexism, transphobia, all the phobias and all the isms, blah, blah, blah. but we don't talk a lot about 
this is not necessarily the case in music, but there's a um, stereotype and a discrimination against people from the South. You know, there are not a lot of actors, comedians. I mean, now you have Nate Bargatze. We had, you know, the blue collar guys, Ron White, et cetera. But a, a comedy writer from the South, you just, you know, we make this assumption that they're dumb, you know, which I talked about on Rogan once. We talked about this, the legacy of hookworm in the South, which is where the stereotype originated. But I found myself sort of rejecting my roots. I'm the smart city girl that, you know, is the kind of person that people would want to put on TV, you know, because you come to Hollywood, everyone has a trust fund or is related to someone. I didn't have any connections, you know, so I had to, I had a lot of shame about coming from the South in any capacity or a rural area. And then I've done five specials. I've toured all over the country and I get to go to these incredible cities. And I'm like, why was I embarrassed of being from West Virginia? The most disgusting people are in Brentwood, California. <laughs> like, I am so proud to not be from any of these major cities, you know, but it took me being able to get some self-esteem other places. Have you witnessed artists grappling with certain things they don't want to talk about, but you know that's where the gold is, you know? Sometimes. sometimes. I would say most musical artists are comfortable talking about where they come from. Mm -hmm. That's and such in, a big part of the pride, and we don't do that as comics. Yeah, it's interesting. That's why I always want to learn so much from music. Yeah, you come, Nelly, just like, you know, it's they'll, they'll yell where they're from, H-Town. I mean, as soon as they come out, you know. And so, you know, something that I've learned a lot from rap mostly is, and I say this with, you know, I'm going to say it how I'm going to say it. And I'll see in the comments, which is, I feel so lucky that I was raised on rap and programmed by it. Because number one, I was lucky enough to be programmed by like Nas and Lauryn Hill. Like there are certain songs that I heard that have been my like North Star as a comedian. And when I'm lost, I'll play it. You know, if I ruled the world by Nas and Lauryn Hill, it go, you go, oh, politicians are trash <laughs> and artists no more. Artists are better people than politicians. Because you grow up thinking, oh, the politicians are the ones that want best for everyone. And thinking, holy shit, if Nas ruled, ruled the world, it would be this amazing place. <laughs> and even, you know, especially as comedians where, you know, make dick jokes and fart jokes, but there are a lot of comedians where you go, if that person was making Al Franken or whoever, like I'd rather that person in office, even though they make dick jokes and do silly stuff, you know? But we're at this time where, you know, I think it's like, it really, I grapple with my job as I'm an entertainer first and foremost. And do you find that musicians these days are grappling with wanting to put an agenda onto something or get political in some way or like weigh in on something and you feel like it's compromising the art? Because I see a lot of comedians doing that right now and I think it's to stay relevant or to virtue signal, but it's really corroding a lot of comedy at the moment. Yeah, most of the artists I work with don't do that. Um, Smart, oh, well the ones that would get to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they would. <laughs> okay, this, these, I'm just gonna, I'm, we're gonna talk about your book directly because this is, it's Rick Rubin. I would like to, so your book. Um, why, why do you think it is that everyone talks about the same subjects? Why do you think it is that all comedians talk about the same subjects, that uh, every news story is the same as every other news story? Why is it all one thing? Yeah, it's like it used to be algorithm insecurity. It's like I call it a conformity crisis. You know, it's not an accident that government of China has made a couple apps that make it so we all think the same too. I mean, that's very much what they want to do uh, in China. And you come over here and you go, oh, 
you know, why is everyone talking about the drag queen, the one drag queen that read the book in the story hour? Everyone's talking about this. Everyone's talking about this, you know, there's, it happened in one place and this is what everybody's talking about, yet there's still not clean water in Flint. There's still not clean water in Appalachia. I mean, there's water's catching on fire in certain places. You know, I think, I think it always in America is going to boil down to capitalism in terms of what people are clicking on. And I think it's, it's the internal drug cabinet addiction of, you know, I'm not the first to say this, obviously, if like the adrenaline you get from clicking on a certain story is going to make dopamine. So it's just where these, what was it, the Skinner's box? Is that the, the experiment where, sure. or even Pavlov's dog, we're just clicking on things because we're click, we're getting the outrage, we're getting that hit. And I think that people right now feel so lost that to have some kind of self-righteous indignation makes them feel important. Alive. Alive. Mm. We've gone so numb that we wake up at 8 a.m. and go, drag queen story hour, like they're molesting kids. It's like, that's that's like when you see someone wake and bake or wake up and do cocaine, you're like, damn, it's not even 9 a.m. and you're already in a rage. And you would think in our society, in most societies, like I'm obsessed with it, I know you, you shun from actual <laughs> violence, as do I. As do I. I know you prefer WWE, which I'm obsessed with WWE. It was one of my dreams growing up to be one of the WWE girls. I thought I would be so good at it. And um, maybe they'll let me be a ring girl one day. But is it uh, this, this event called Calcio Storico. It happens once a year in um, Florence, Italy. It was a game made for kings to entertain them. It's bare knuckle, it's football, but bare knuckle boxing. I've seen it. It's, the thing I love about it is that it's not professional athletes. You don't see monster energy drink on the side. You know, it's, I love you, Logan Paul, but he's not like running around with Trump. It's, the teams are neighborhoods. So it's brothers against brothers and cousins against uncles. And, you know, so there's heart there. There's this goosebumps. I'm always looking for what's going to give people goosebumps. And as a comedian, I got to go, okay, what can I learn from that thing that gives goosebumps? But when that event happens, violence goes down to zero in the city of Florence, which is a pretty rough city, Florence. Mm -hmm. So I'm fascinated when you go online, you can see these world star videos. You see all these like murder videos, you know, like all this crazy, like the guy that was just killed, the snap, the cash app founder. And then on the news, they show the surveillance video. I'm like, why would you even, it's like a snuff film, you know? And you would think, oh, this is gonna be catharsis for humans. Cause that's what happens in many places when you see it live. But I think when you see it digitally, it actually desensitizes us. Do you feel that as a society we've become more just desensitized given what we have access to? Absolutely. Can't help it. You can't help but become desensitized. I can remember the first time I saw a really um, gratuitously violent movie. It was before my first year of high school, so whatever age that is. And I remember seeing it in a theater of, and um, where uh, zombies, people with makeup, we're getting people their, in Venice, California, zombies, yeah, Met zombies, zombies? Uh, getting their heads blown apart, and it was shot really graphically. And uh, I think it was called Day of the Dead. It was the last of this series of dead movies. But anyway, I went to see it in a as a midnight movie, and a lot of kids were going to see it, so I went to see it. And um, people in the theater were standing up and cheering when the people were getting blown apart, and mm. it was just so bizarre. I remember thinking, like, this can't be good. That can't be good. That's a comedian brain. That's a comedian brain of, you know, everyone's watching football, having the best time. And I'm like, how many um, concussions. concussions is that? Yeah. 
you know, or I'm just going, oh God, this guy, but he's, this guy is only in for two years. When you do two, you don't get that much. But the other side of it is, I'm fine that it exists. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not into shutting things down. I like that we get to make our choices and Mm -hmm. do what suits us. I I make my choices and I want you to make your choices. And if they're not the same, that's great. Of course. For me, it's important to know what's going on. I don't have a judgment about it, but I just go as someone whose job it is to comment on culture and comment on humanity. Mm-hmm. I need to feel this, witness this. I never feel like I'm participating in society since I was a kid. I always felt like I was a fly on the wall, like an anthropologist. I Same. always, and I felt like I was invisible. I think being neglected so much as a kid, I was kind of, and I would move through the world just staring at people, observing people. It's, a, it's not even a choice just to feel like you're observing, not participating. Yeah, I just never felt like I was part of anything and just outside of everything, watching and observing and trying to understand. Which is so ironic. Because so, so much of it didn't make sense to me. That's a, So that's like sort of a core. I wanted to ask you about your source. You talk about on page 15 of your book about your source and figuring out what your source is or cultivating it. For me, most of mine are embarrassing. you know do you feel like your source in a lot of ways like did it start there just trying to figure out why are adults behaving like this I kind of would go we went to church and it would say love people and then at home I wouldn't see love and I was like I couldn't and I had to figure out how we went from this to this as a kid you're always trying to make sense of why would this nun who's my teacher who's teaching me about love and kindness then whip me with a ruler like I I couldn't you know I had to figure out and then I'd think in movies, oh, magical spells. Maybe a spell was put on her. You know, I would turn it into some creative thing that would exonerate the adult from any responsibility because I guess I, I couldn't handle that there was evil in the world, you know? So I think that's maybe a lot of what my source comes from is to go, I feel this obligation to alchemize negativity in the world or alchemize bad behavior into something positive. And that's, I think, what turns into being devil's advocate or a contrarian later in life of, you know, I just saw, you know, a famous man be violent with his wife uh, in a video online and everyone's like, this is awful. And of course I'm like, I just want to know what she said. The second before you smell, like, I just want to know what she said. I'm not saying this is right, but you know, there could be that one thing a woman can say to her husband in public that just makes him go there. You know, of course not condoning it, but as a comedian, I always want to defend the indefensible and that's part of my source. Have you ever said something to someone that made them want to strike you? You know, I was a boss of many, many people way older than me when I was very young. I had two sitcoms when I was like 27. And so I think just, you know, I think we can beat that joke to a male comedy writer who've been do, who wrote on Friends and Cheers and all these amazing shows. And then I'm 27 running, running a sitcom about what I do and thinking or going like, oh, I've heard that before. That doesn't feel fresh. I learned you kind of can't say that to people. There's a better way to say it. But at the time, I, you know, I think that the kindest way to speak to anyone is just directly and honestly, because I was lied to so much as a kid and there was so much like, sort of sugarcoating shit and it just confused me. You know, I was diagnosed with autism and Asperger's and all this stuff and I was always just so confused, but I think people are also, adults are confusing. They're like, always tell the truth. And then they're like, there's this magical bunny that when Jesus has risen, leaves magical eggs. And I'm like, no, I feel like this isn't true. I think kids kind of know everything and they can enter into letting the adults bullshit them. But if the adult doesn't really sell it, 
Like if you grow up in a home that's poor and they're trying to sort of, you know, have these traditions work, it's like Santa Claus is coming. And then the next morning it would just be like ashtrays from around the house wrapped up. It would be like, this is shit from our house. Like Santa didn't come in and wrap up our shit, you know? So I think like, you know, I think as a kid, you're really just, if your parents are going to lie to you, that's, that's a big thing. I think about that a lot. Like, you know, I think this is part of the reason I became a comedian because I went on stage to be like, is this normal? And then people would laugh and I would go, okay, I'm not crazy. That's a big part of what comedians do. You know, that's why there's the live element to it of going, my parents did this and this and everyone laughs. And so that's when you, okay, they've gone through this also. I'm not just like losing my mind. Your sitcoms in front of an audience? Yes, sir. Both. Yes, both in front of an audience. Can you imagine doing comedy that's meant to be digested to be funny with no audience there? Is it How can you do it? You can't. I mean, you can't. We saw during the pandemic people doing Zoom shows and stuff and Godspeed to anyone that needed to make money doing experimental things at that time. But like, how do they even do it for a movie? How can a movie be funny if there's no audience? You know, for me, I always say that in a way, a movie, the crew, I mean, it's tricky because these are people that are on payroll, but you do a rehearsal and the crew is allowed to laugh in the rehearsal. I always say, crew, please laugh. No one's going to get in trouble. You know, this isn't a Weinstein production. You can laugh, you can be humans. You know, and for me, making the crew laugh is the best thing ever. So, so to me, the live studio audience, you know, uh, is almost a little bit of just a cheat. The, the live studio audience, they're excited to see you. They know you, they're coming to a taping. They're already primed to laugh, which is part of the reason people think sitcoms feel so fake, which is, you know, something I do want to talk about. You put in here uh, Lars von Trier's um, uh, list of how to combat artificiality um, on page 210, which I was just like, well, in sitcoms, that's, you know, it's in a way it's the art is leaning into the artificiality of it because it's three walls you know with no roof and there's an audience audience there and I got very lucky that I discovered Jean Baudrillard when I was a mid sort of teenager again another thing that probably right now we'd look back and say was unfortunate for me but I actually like think gave me an advantage in life was that I dated much older men I grew up at a time where that was okay, uh, where it was normal, where, you know, my parents encouraged it. In the South, that was, it, it's, I don't know if it's a Southern thing or what, I can only speak from my experience, but it was, okay, if you're a 15 year old girl, what's worse, dating a 15 year old boy who's just gonna be playing video games and smoking weed and telling all his friends about, you know, showing them photos of you naked or dating a guy who's 30 who has a car and can get you dinner and pick you up from school. Like, you know, so I also feel lucky that I discovered books that I wouldn't have discovered otherwise. And, you know, I dated a guy that ran, had a Subway franchise and I got to go with him to his work. I mean, it's weird looking back. You're like, yeah, that was too young. And, you know, I grew up very fast, you would say, in D.C., you know, grew up going to the 930 Club. But looking back, forgetting the story associated with it, for you, it was a good experience. I didn't feel traumatized. I think for me in this this moment of that everyone is really, you know, trauma survivors, so many women, you know, the statistics it, are impossible to ascertain, let's be honest, of women and, and boys that have been molested or sexually assaulted. Sexual assault doesn't always mean physical, in a church pew, something, you know, it can be, you know, I had a stepmother who, you know, used drugs and she was walked around naked a lot. She was just naked a lot. My dad went and saw sex workers. I'm very proud of him though, actually, for paying for sex. That's, that's a, you know, when he cheated. And I would see these naked women. I would see very sexual situations very young. And I was abused. So by the time I was 15 and a guy just wanted to take me to dinner and yes, I'm sure it's, it was creepy on his 
part because I wasn't particularly emotionally mature, but I was smart. Like I look back and I was like, I was very studious because I, you know, was forced into modeling very young and I was always very insecure that I wasn't smart. And so I would like just read, I'd read the dictionary, just be like, cause I heard models are stupid. And if you're pretty, you're stupid. And I was like, okay, if I'm a model, I must be pretty. But it wasn't even that. I was just, I had such bad eating disorders. I was so skinny that I was a fit model. So you just stand there and they sew clothes on you and they make sure your, th your thighs aren't allowed to touch. It's kind of the main thing. And then I'd have so much time on my hands. I would just, I was like, I don't want to do this forever. Like, this is so boring. So much of my creativity and drive comes from the fear of being bored and the fear of being embarrassed. I'm curious, do you ever think it's okay to channel these fears, these negative things. Absolutely. Instead of trying to, because a lot of people go, let me heal this fear. I'm like, I don't want to heal it. I want to keep the fear, but just know how to use it like a magic wand when I need it. I would say you can heal it and still use it. Mm. That sounds expensive. <laughs> sounds like it takes a while. <laughs> Betterhelp.com, well, promo it, code. It, it takes a lot of work, but, but it's worth it. You talk uh, in here about addiction sort of towards the end. It's interesting because I always feel like people's first question is like, do you have to be broken in order to be creative? And you kind of bury the lead and put it later in the book. But have you seen artists, obviously don't name names, who you felt like leaned on their brokenness, had to, for whatever reason, get sober, healed, and then the art got better? Because I, I always like to show proof. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Happens all the time. And I can remember when I was um, young, I, again, I don't remember specifics, but I remember if someone asked me about something and I talked about something, sometimes I'll remember that. Mm -hmm. So if, if I was trying to remember how I felt, I won't remember how I felt. Mm -hmm. But if someone asked me how I felt then, I might remember that conversation. So I remember being interviewed for an English magazine right in the beginning, first couple of albums came out, had a lot of success right from the beginning. And one of the, the questions was, do you have any concerns that whatever drive you have that has made the things that you've made so good and successful will go away in success? Because it happens for a lot of people. When they get successful, they can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. oh. And I remember saying, I remember my answer was, whatever that's, whatever's wrong with me is so deep-seated that no amount of success is going to have anything to do with it. I knew it. Wow. Because I see these artists these days and I see comics and I see them, you know, they're like, I have an anxiety disorder and I'm I have an anxious. And I'm like, that's, that's a comedian, honey. Like I don't, and I say honey on purpose because we don't have human resources in comedy because, and I want you to get used to it. <laughs> get used to sexual harassment now. But when I get lost creatively, I now just read your book because this is my new Bible and I'll get into the granular things in a second. But I think about the role of a comedian in history and that helps me remember how important this job is at times where I want to go, oh, I'm not curing cancer. Oh, there's a war in the Ukraine. You know, you saw it, you know, comedians, we vacillate between having this delusional confidence of I deserve to speak for two hours. And when I do, you have to pay me you have to pay me money, and if you utter the tiniest word, security will remove you to, I'm such a piece of shit, like, you know, but the narcissistic insecurity, I'm a piece of shit in the center of the universe, you know? But I think about the role, you know, of the court jester, you know, that was in Europe, though. Stand-up is a uniquely American invention like rap. So 
I look at, okay, the court jester's job was to not only deliver bad news to the king, like, hey, we lost the war, you know, with, I, I don't know how bells on the end of a sock chilled him out, but he probably had scurvy and all kinds of other shit. But it was also to, and I think that this is today a comedian's purpose more than ever, is it was their job to try to, to make fun of the king to his face. And if the king didn't laugh, that meant that power had corrupted the king's brain. Because if someone can't laugh at themselves, they're sick. And I'll say that and, you know, there's something wrong with you if you can't laugh at yourselves. So this kind of debacle with, you know, Chappelle and, and trans people or, you know, certain people who say you can't make fun of them or they can't laugh at a joke about them, even if it's not a good joke, you can just go like, oh, it just wasn't a good joke. But if a good one does come and you don't laugh, there's something going on with you if you can't laugh at yourself, you know? But at the same time, you can also say like, you know, certain people are not ready to do that. And those people always existed. We just have never given them microphones before. But that was their job, regardless of whether that's true or not. And then in America, immigrant coping mechanism and to lift up others, to heal, and then to, to send messages, you know? I mean, you think of, and I, my mom just died and I found out I'm half Jewish, which I always kind of knew. I'm surprised it's only half, but it's a lot of, you see comedians going on stage, female comics, they talk about their pussy all the time. Or, you know, I spent three specials talking about birth control and how it screwed up my brain and my ability to choose the right man because it, you know, makes you smell pheromones differently. And then I went on this antidepressant and this is what happened. And I got really bad migraines. So I knew I was doing it on some level, but I didn't realize I was following in this tradition of sharing, sending warnings to people, to the masses going, don't take this, you know, people got all over Joe Rogan about questioning the vaccine. That's what we do. You know, we've gone, hold on, hold on. Pharma's going to tell you to do this. The president's going to tell you to do this, but are they taking it? And then, you know, Ms. Pat, amazing comedian who, you know, grew up on food stamps, who always said, don't eat the government butter. It'll choke you. Don't do this. You know, like, here's how to vote. Like, you know, so there's a big responsibility for a lot of comedians. Or for me, I feel that a lot of comedians, that's kind of how we started in a lot of ways. And then, you know, Joan Rivers, like, she had millions and millions of jokes. She didn't have to go on Johnny Carson and say, I was born with a coat hanger in my ear. You know, they told her not to. But a big part of us is we're the ones that when someone tells us we can't do something, we want to do it even more strongly because we just want to test the person that's in charge and make sure they're number one sane and number two have a reason for why they get to be in charge. And there's something about, you know, we have this childlike brattiness that I think is actually should more adults should have. What's so funny about the forbidden, because it seems like that's what so many jokes are about saying something that you're not allowed to say. The taboo. How does it work? The how tension. Does it, how does it work? And I'll say this right now, which is, you know, not the popular take and maybe, you know, a magician revealing their tricks kind of thing. But this whole moment where everyone's like, comedians can't say anything. Like, PC culture's ruining comedy. Not for good comics. Like, it's actually the best thing that's happened to comedy in years because there were no eggshells on the ground. Four or five years ago, you couldn't surprise anyone. Trump was the funniest person on the planet. <laughs> Trump was funnier than any comedian, you know? He, and he was so outrageous, like the, you know, everyone was so desensitized. You would go on, your morning news was a pee tape. You know, Trump peeing on Stormy Daniels' face. He's calling, you know, uh, Rosie O'Donnell a pig. I mean, he's just killing. The guy's killing. 
And we're just like, he said seven funny things before noon, and we're just over here like, hey, guys. And then comedians, the only way to even compete with Trump was to talk about him. But then you're talking about Trump, and then you have something, you know, I did Trump's roast, you know, 14 years ago now, which was the beginning of his campaign, we realized at the time, but we didn't know at the time until his speech was after the roast. He went, this is what's wrong in America. Elites are beaten up on the, and we were like, shit, the guy's a genius. You know, so this PC, you can't say this word, you can't say this word. I think it's been incredible for comedy. There's tension again, people come in and, you know, forget New York, LA and San Francisco. Those aren't places that buy tickets to see comedians anyway. Like you said about why you feel so grateful you grew up outside New York, you know, the people inside LA and inside New York, like they're not customers. I only think about customers. I like to back into it and go, what is someone paying money to see? You could see so, you could, on YouTube, you can see a panda bear painting a picture. There's, why would you ever leave your house? I mean, there's people, there's germs, there's traffic, it's stressful. So it's like for someone to come see a show this day and age, like they must need something really bad. They must need what? To be shocked, to be surprised. It's very hard to surprise people, you know? So I think that we just, it's odd that, a, that this day and age, like, as a comedian, it's our job to be the person going, I don't know about that, I don't know about that, the negative person, but also I feel like being relentlessly positive is sort of my goal moving forward and letting people know like, you actually don't need to worry about that. You actually don't, here's why. Because I think that we're now competing with this fucking constant news cycle where everyone is just like, yeah, phones are bad for kids. It's like, mm, yes and no. You know what I mean? When's the last time you saw a kid in a cast? They don't get injured the way they used to. You know what I mean? Before phones, we were jumping off roofs and getting in tires and rolling down hills and putting our fingers in a, like, you know what I mean? So anyway, I wanted to talk to you about this because <laughs> what? <laughs> Just funny. That's what you do. Which is you have to, every comedian's creative magic is, has to be different because it's, it's a partnership with the audience and it is so... There's no comedy without, there's no stand-up comedy without the audience. That's, that's not what we do here. You know, I think it's a, it's a, you know, I've gone to these listening parties for musicians, you know, in LA, sometimes they'll say, oh, there's a, you know, Kendrick's doing a listening party where like hundred people can come listen to it. And you're like, oh my God, you get there and do it. And then you're kind of like, wait, what if he hears something he doesn't like? like, or what if people don't respond the way he wants? I remember thinking like, he can't go back and change it. I mean, to me, the magic of comedy is if one night you, it doesn't go how you want, the next night you got another bite at the apple, you know, or you get to go back and rewrite, you get to change stuff. And the idea that y'all incubate, make it without. But it's like a special. I think of it more like a special. The album is the special. Do you ever worry though, that you're so close to something that you don't know when to walk away? Because I let the audience decide. I don't have to decide. Yeah, I try to stay far enough out of the process to not get sunk by it. Do you do the A-B test? This is one of the most incredible Absolutely. creativity I, I tools. I A-B test all day, every day. That's my life. So on, I think it's page 210, he talks about the A-B test. If you're having trouble making a decision about something. I have done this in the last two weeks. It has changed my life. And so down to should I date this person? Yeah, because so easy. I've been doing the coin toss test where you just toss a coin, which at first I went, well, Rick, are you insane? I'm deciding whether I'm gonna shoot a special or not. I'm gonna decide whether, you know, I'm gonna date this person or not. And the reason I bring that up is that very much so for a comedian, I think for everyone, who you date is a business decision. That's sad. Just not even so much as money or anything. Do they deplete you? Do they energize you? Do they 
discourage you from working on your art? Do they get frustrated if you go, oh, I have to write that down? And they're like, oh, you're working. I see so many comedians, not to say that that's not real love there, who aren't allowed to talk about their wives on stage or their girlfriends. Like, it's more that. It's more my whole life is, has to be on limits. Even if I don't end up doing it, I have to be able to write this joke about this moment, even if I end up cutting it. But if someone goes, you can't say that in a relationship, I'm already like. Yeah, but then it's not the right person for you. But I, I don't think, I think the uh, reducing it to a business decision is, uh, that doesn't I, sound right. Maybe a better, better. I, I, sometimes saying that helps. The way I talk to comedians is very different than I talk to like humans. <laughs> we're feral animals. Like we, we haven't, we're, we've either evolved too far or not far enough. Like wouldn't you say creatives, like we're either like a little ahead or a little behind. I can't really tell. But this coin toss, and I was like, okay, should I shoot this special this year? Because in the vein of what my source is, a lot of my source is anger and a protective instinct to protect comedians. I want to say one thing about source because you're interpreting it differently than I think I explain it in the book. There's probably a different word besides source. But this is how words fuck me. I think of source as the creative, generative energy of the universe. It's not us. The source is not us. We gather information, but whatever we gather is coming from the source, but it's not ours. So, well, I'm God, so I guess. I'm like, but I am the universe. I'm <laughs> Only a narcissist would interpret it that way. Yes. <laughs> well, I was sort of thinking about like channeling, because you sort of talked about like, you know, as being of service to God, as you're creating, which yes. has really helped me because I think there's such a narcissistic sort of engine, which I don't say that it's in a negative way. It's not about way. us. You know, it's personal and it's not about us. My art always gets better when it's about, I'm gonna make these people in Cleveland have the best night of their fucking life. It's not, I'm gonna make this much money. I'm gonna put this video on my Instagram. As soon as I'm of service, you know, I think for me, like I, people go, how did you get funny? I'm like, I was just trying to make my dad laugh. And then my dad had a stroke and went into, and he couldn't move. And so, you know, I was trying to get him to smile when his face was paralyzed. Yeah. And then I was trying to make people in LA laugh that had Botox. It's hard to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, like, why aren't you laughing? I have to work twice as hard. I've got to get through Botox, you know? So. I, but I, I, I just sort of went a step further, I guess, with the source thing going like how to channel if I'm of, in, of service to God. But yeah, I guess what would you use as the word that's your motivation, your muse in terms of like, you know, because I think a lot of the motives that comedians have or that I have tend to be things that could be pathologized. But I actually think anger can be one of the best motivations. And I actually did your anger exercise. How was it? But before I, t I want to finish, this. see, I told you okay. I was going to be all over the place. Yeah. The coin toss test. Let's talk about the AB and then we'll talk about the coin okay, toss. Okay, so I want to explain, explain AB okay. since I... The AB is trying to reduce whatever choices you have in life, reduce it to, to a choice between two to start with. Now, there may be more out there, but start with two. Is it going to be red or is it going to be blue? It's as simple as that. I'm a libertarian whatever it is, <laughs> and, you, and you look at your two choices, and usually when you get it down to two choices, and if you don't think past what does it mean to anyone else, what's simple about what I'm talking about is there is no other concern other than what's going on in you. You're tasting 
two dishes at a restaurant and you're deciding, next time I come back, which one is the one I'm going to order? It's not a hard decision. You'd like one better than the other. We're tasting two versions of something. If you taste two versions, I like this one, I don't like this one. It's easy. I think our species, I think we kind of over-evolved a little bit because our inability to keep things simple. Like if you ask someone a simple question like that, would you rather spend the weekend with your mom or your dad? Or which relative would you rather spend the weekend with? Even whittling it down will turn into, well, probably my aunt, but my, that would upset my dad. Like even trying to whittle it down. It's a different question. See, you, you're answering a different question. What you just said was like, oh, that would make so-and-so feel. I'm not asking what it would make so-and-so feel. trying to do the test makes me realize how cluttered. Yes. In a it's such a simple thing. It's so simple. What do you like better? Period. It's so simple. And then I go, well, what would people want me to like? Doesn't matter. What should I like? It doesn't matter. That's not the question. None of those things matter. Those, all of those things get in the way with making the best thing you can make. And that to me, and I wrote down everything that was getting in the way of me just saying, trying to pick between two things. What would this person think? What would, and then I go, that's the work I need to that's do. That's not what it is. It's not about them. It is not about them. What meal do I like better? Which one photographs better on for Instagram? It's <laughs> just like, Jesus, like what? And then you got to figure out all of those things, those obstacles that are stopping let go, you. Let go of all of that. <laughs> but I'm like, whose voice was that? I don't My know. My mom didn't, have, I don't know. didn't let me eat certain food. She, well, that's carbs, so I shouldn't have that. Who the fuck's voice was that? Yeah. It's almost like in, um, you know, I'm in a 12-step program called ACA, which is just like nurturing your inner child when you grew up in a dysfunctional home. And it actually helped me when I was first trying to do the, the AB exercise. To There's a really powerful exercise with people that chronically deprive self-harm in, you know, with abusive relationships, with substance abuse, with, you know, whatever it is, uh, you name it, to communicate with your inner child. It's obviously going to take a little bit of, you know, first you're like, fuck, this is dumb. Like, all right, when you can get past the ego of it, you write a question to your inner child in your dominant hand, and then you answer in your non-dominant hand. So as simple as, what do you want to have for breakfast today? Me, I'm going to go, one egg, I'll snort athletic greens, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then fast for seven days, you know? And then if I say to my inner child, what do you want for breakfast? The first time I did it, I cried for so long because she said, um, peanut butter smiles, which is what my dad and I used to make, which was just a piece of bread with peanut butter. And he'd make a smile with his finger and put honey in the smiles. Beautiful. And it was right there. Just all I had to see was my hand writing non-dominant childlike. And that's how quick you could get to it. So when I'm struggling sometimes with a decision, I go, do I want to do this 60 city tour? And my little child's like, no. I'm like, what do you want to do? And she'll say, play, plant flowers. And I'm like, I guess that's what I'm doing this fall. Great. And that's what the coin toss is like. The coin toss is if you get down to a choice of two and you can't decide, if it's not obvious, if you taste two dishes and you don't know which one you like better and you can't decide, then you flip a coin. And when the coin is in the air, you listen to what's going on in your body to see which side are you rooting for to come up. It doesn't matter what the coin, where the coin lands. Mm -mm. It's just, we're using techniques to get out of our own way to understand what's going on inside of ourselves to what we really want. This exercise holds a mirror. It's like our subconscious. It's like 
Our subconscious gets to tell us what it wants when we don't have it on the surface of our conscious mind. Because we've, I cannot believe before reading this book, even me, like I kind of, you know, Rick Rubin wrote a book about creativity. This is for everyone else. I mean, this is for like, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm me. I mean, what am I going to really find? And these simple exercises that just hold up a mirror to your inner monologue and the voices in your head that aren't yours, that are... And they're not on your side. They're not there to help they're you. They're rooting to keep you the same. Mm-hmm. And they're rooting to keep you away from vulnerability. So I also have this war going on in my head back to the sort of one of the reasons I do this, which I was conflating with source motive is protecting my pack, my wolf pack. So comedians I see as my wolf pack, my brothers, and I see Chappelle just getting, he, he can handle it. He's fine. doesn't need me. But I think a lot of creativity for me at this point is going, what are other people talking about? And how can I talk about either the same thing in a different way to give the audience this yin yang or this, there's, I've, I'm, see, I'm seeing a lack of balance in, in the conversation. And I, I know how frustrating that is for, people don't want this. People don't want this, no one's allowed to say this and these dorks on Twitter saying, you're not allowed to say gender non-conforming, you have to, no one wants that. You know, for me, if I'm confused about what people want, I'm like, well, I'm going to, you know, Toledo, Ohio next week. None of them even know what's going on for the most part, but no one wants it. But I, I have this, this compulsion to make things fair, which is part, why such a big part of my creative process is observing animal packs. You just go online, watching hyenas, watching paint. Like there's just a fairness in herds. But what's happening, Chappelle, I just feel is unfair. And when something's unfair, I get this obsession with justice and that's where my creativity comes. Cause I just go, let me write the premises in anger and the punchlines in peace. So that's where my anger really thrives, that serves me, but I can't write the punchlines in anger. Cause then it won't be funny. Which is like a new process that you help me kind of think about. But yes, I was like, should I shoot the special this year? Because it's mostly jokes that I was inspired by seeing this Chappelle drama. It's an hour about, you know, trans women and drag queens and all the stuff we're not allowed to say. And I'm like, oh, am I just doing this to get into controversy? Because I see so many comedians being controversial on purpose to like get in the algorithm or ride a wave. Like we talked about surfing earlier. Sometimes you see a zeitgeist wave and you go, maybe I should surf that one. There's already a lot of momentum here. Sebastian Maniscalco, a lot of comedians were just waiting for the perfect wave that matches our skill set that's already going on in the zeitgeist. Jersey Shore comes along. Sebastian had been talking about his Italian family and this, you know, and then Jersey Shore happens and he just rode that wave perfectly. So I was like, do I ride this wave or am I being selfish? Am I coasting off someone else's drama? I never want to be that bitch. So I, as soon as I flipped the coin, I was like, I really want to shoot this special. The jokes are so good. Like, I really feel like this is like going to help people. And then I didn't even have to look at the rest. Yeah. My biggest. You know, you know, this is the thing. We know. But then I called Tim Dillon and he's like, you got to do this. I'm like, I'm trusting the coin. Yeah. I'm not taking advice from anyone anymore because we yeah. already know. You know. You help us. Th- this helps us get out of our own way. Absolutely. I just had an epiphany, which is that I need to spend a little bit less time with comedians. Most of my friends are comedians and you never have to ask them direct questions because they'll just. Just talk. And I went, this is wild to 
talk to someone who's waiting for a question. Whereas comedians, we just wildly, you share something and then you go, oh, they'll, I'll go like, this is what inspired me. And then comedians will go, well, what inspired me was, like, you don't even have to. And I'm just like realizing that. And I think artists need to spend time with artists in different fields. Do you go out of your way to do that? Like greatness in other I like, fields? I like hanging out with people who are good at whatever they do. And it's interesting when they're not people who do music as well. What have you learned about comedy in the last year in your anthropological endeavors hmm. of us primitive apes? I don't know if I've done a deep dive into comedy in the last year. You came to the roast writer's room. Oh, I did come to the roast mm -hmm. writer's room. I would love that to That was just... a really interesting experience. It was nothing like what I expected. What did you learn about coming in and listening to a bunch of scumbag writers trashing each other in a safe space? It, was, we... it was odd how performative it was. Yep. I didn't, wasn't expecting that. Mm -mm. It it's... felt like the whole thing was a performance. So Rick Rubin, who just said, walking into a writer's room uh, with a bunch of comedians, which we're, we're not, we're the opposite of rappers. We have no self-esteem whatsoever. People didn't even care enough about us to shoot at us. You know what I mean? <laughs> we weren't even worth the bullets. <laughs> so Rick Rubin comes in, which his signature being barefoot, comes in barefoot. And again, I do think there is this co-fascination with music and comedy, whereas most comedians don't look up to comedians. We look up to musicians. And a lot of musicians, rappers come up to me and they're like, oh my God, I could never do what you do. And we're like, what? we're obsessed with you. There's this co-fascination. So when you came in, had you been, you know, Dave Chappelle or Chris Rock or, you know, John Stewart, we'd be like, hey, retard, put some shoes on, you know, like, we, but you came in and I could feel, I already knew the difference that my presence was making in the room because I was the boss that got to decide what went in. And I just turned into daddy, daddy, mommy, mommy. And then you came in and it was already, it's already performative without you there, but I could, there was just this, you know, reminder of these rough people that are saying all this rough shit were like, I hope Rick Rubin likes me. And your eyes were closed. And I remember mouthing to them, he can't see, he doesn't know which one of you is saying what. So just stop it, <laughs> stop it. He doesn't care, you know what I mean? And then after you left, I remember thinking, you know, cause everyone was trying so hard to be like so funny and it felt very, you know, we're do performing a writer's room. And even though we come off as these rough people, we just want to be loved and we want to be perfect. And you've talked about in your book, like there is no such thing as perfection, but like the coin flip exercise, is there any value in chasing this elusive perfection, but knowing, you know, like does placebo effect work if you know it's a placebo? Don't know. It yes. Will. It will work. Do you think there's value in chasing perfection, knowing it doesn't exist? Absolutely. That's that's what we do. It's like we want it to be as good as it could be, whatever that is. Perfection's a funny word, but we want it to be the best it could be. And if we use the word perfect, perfect is not necessarily the best it could be. Right, right, right. Perfect is like boring. Perfect is mechanical. It's machine-like. It's not so interesting. And people look at these, quote, perfect, you know, I've had a robot made, and they are creeped out by it. We're attracted to the humanity in things, the, and, the difference between things. And something being perfect creates this pressure. Like, 
you know, it could break, it could, you know, and you talk about in your book, and it's a different term in your book, the Japanese philosophy, wabi-sabi, that something is actually more valuable if it's been weathered, aged, broken, but I'm Kintsugi, sorry. Kintsugi, it's that, called. <laughs> but that's what it's, the gold, that yes. when there is a break in a bowl, gilding the break. Yeah, they repair the break with a strip of gold and you see it forever. Instead of trying to hide the break, they make the break a feature. And it, and seemed, it also gives you a sense of, you're reminded of its history. It gives it a story, it gives it age, it gives it a story. And this new gold stripe is the strongest part of the new version of this uh, pottery. Something that I like uh, to say that's, um, because sometimes people, I realize different brains need different things. Like you do an incredible job in your book of writing in a way that even, you know, that in the people that I've given it to, to read it, everyone is able to, you know, I sometimes give books to people on creativity, even the war of art. People are like, I don't, I, you know, some people's brains need different kinds of metaphors. Like you always just say the perfect thing, like so clearly. And I always say it, the most intelligent people are able to make things simple. You know, again, I'm getting to your point of how to make those magic moments. No one's taken out of the spell. He knows how to not break the spell by saying, and then It's not I, distracting as such. He's not showing off. Whereas in some great music, you're like, holy shit, like Lil Wayne just used the word defenestrate. Like <laughs> I would have just said, throw her out the window, you know, or, you know, it's, that's why we call it a window pane, like Eminem, you know, where you're able to like sort of overcomplicating things is sort of part of the like, oh shit, like that feeling you get. But let me, I'm going to ask you a couple direct questions because I keep thinking you're going to be the malignant narcissist, chatterbox, verbal diarrhea monsters I normally talk to. Um, and I've already gotten the concept of, even if you get the concepts wrong, they still help you. <laughs> Thinking of my source, now I have two versions of it. On page 65, you talk about dreams. Can I ask, you talk about keeping a dream journal, how important that is. I started doing it since I read your book. Mine looks more like a suicide note right now, but... <laughs> When did you start keeping a dream journal? I did that experiment probably 20 years ago and kept it up for probably a year. And it was fascinating, more fascinating in retrospect than when it was happening. When it was happening, the dreams made no sense to me. They all were these surreal Dali-esque stories. Everyone was different, hmm. had no idea what they were about. And then when I look back on it years later, they all were about exactly what was going on in my life. They were all the same. They weren't, the, the stories weren't the same, but what they, they were different versions, different interpretations of something that was going on from different perspectives, but I was too close to see it. Whoa, so it was like your subconscious. It's like, you know, you say in the book, which I thought was so beautiful, and I'm gonna butcher exactly how you said it. It's, you know, this book, I really believe that it's sometimes all we need, you know, I think is one person we really respect to say the exact thing we need to hear in the right way for our brain to receive it. Right now, there's this, you need to go to therapy for 10 years and you need to go on this pill for 12 years. It's like right now, I think a lot of people stand to gain a lot from convincing people that it takes a long time to change, a long time to heal. Some things will take a long time to heal, but that's also a self-limiting belief. You know, for me, like, getting molested, getting abused as a kid. I was like, well, I can't even deal with that. I'm just gonna have to cope with, the with it and deny it and just be angry forever. And then I went to this, me meditation wasn't taking for me because sadness would come up. And I was like, gotta get out of this. I didn't wanna cry. I just wanted to stay kind of in this 
push it down, push it down. And comedy is a great way to do that. And workaholism is a great way to do that. But then I went to this meditation class, uh, George Haas, who his meditations, he'll start with these forgiveness meditations where you just say, I forgive you, you forgive me, I forgive myself. Beautiful. And, you know, so I turned in this walking meditation where I just started forgiving people. And when I heard an ACA, like we forgive others, not because they deserve forgiveness, but because we deserve peace. Like I was able to forgive my abusers and they, it was over. That's all I needed. Forgiveness was at least for me, all I needed. Amazing. And I was like, done. For me, I think I just felt on a very, like, maybe like a Darwinian instinct that holding on to this anger was going to kill me. And it was, you know, being angry, I think is just such an incredible tool. But if it's not used as one, if it's just a default state, it's going to limit you as an artist. And I felt like my first special, I was just angry at men. All men. And then all women are like this because of two or three people. And I was punishing, you know, millions of comedy fans <laughs> for something a couple people did 30 years ago. So I think you have to figure out, it helps me with what I make to go, how do I back into it? How do I want the audience to feel when they leave here? You know, I want them to be elated. I want them for the entire time they were here to have thought about nothing else. I want them to not check their phones once. They didn't even want to except to maybe take a picture or something. Like I get these, I put these like goals in my head, these impossibly high goals, because I think that impossibly high goals, there's not a lot of competition there, but like high goals, there's a lot. Did you ever, when you started, did you have goals? Like, did you you didn't have a vision board, nothing. Never had any goals. I don't work that way at all. I feel like uh, from the conversations we've had, our experience in the world are almost polar opposites. The way we see the world and the way we work in the world. Approach. Yeah. We'll have to read in this book. I mean, I'm and, and to me, I'm going, okay, I want to take, I think that your essence, your ethos is can be so like i'm never going to be able to get that to that be that peaceful it's and so much simpler I, what i'm doing is so much simpler <laughs> i think you want to figure it out always and i know it's not knowable and you write and that that's in, what, and that's the difference you write it in the because artists is this such a big part of your magic as a producer i mean i've talked to many people before talking to you and they a lot of the artists said he lets you spin your wheels and just validates your reality. And then is like, great, do you want to sing it? Or, you know, do you want to put that, in? like, why are you telling me? Let's do it. Put it there. Because yeah. do you think that artists, like with what you're witnessing with me, there's this need to be understood or need to understand. And the ultimate freedom in life is to know we never will. I think the ultimate freedom in life is to know we never will. That's the reality. And I know from the conversations when we've talked about working on things together, you jump ahead in the process to the towards like the end of it. To where it's gonna, I tend to go, well, this and this, these are the things that are gonna go wrong, so let's change what's gonna happen here. Right. Because as a producer in television, you know, I made Roseanne, you know, the Roseanne reboot, not much goes wrong on my watch ever because I come from, you know, catastrophic thinking, which has made me a great producer because mm -hmm. I'm able to go, this is what's going to go wrong. So let's actually change this person's call time earlier so that, the, you know, because there's 200 people involved every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I did, 
I tried it with Roseanne. I said, she's, you know, has a lot to say. She has not been this famous in a while. She's on Twitter. I said like, you know, you can't silence Roseanne Barr. You can't do it. But I felt it and I didn't say any, I did think it a couple times, but I didn't say anything. And a lot of times the job as a producer, you know, in my field, cause you're working with so many people on a daily basis that are programmed under influences of not even, yes, probably drugs and all kinds of stuff, but fear, shame, guilt, all that nasty shit, d desire for perfection. They don't do well with authority figures. And by that, I mean, they turn authority figures into daddy, daddy, mommy, mommy, and they, their frontal lobe cuts off. They stop functioning. You know, I've seen the way that people reacted to Roseanne. I didn't, that's the one ship moving towards the cliff I didn't see. Because comedians, we so want to be like everyone else. We so just want to be treated like, we kind of want our outsides to match our insides. Because we go, we're just like you. We're just like, we just are so desperate for attention. We just get up there and say it, you know? I mean, comedians, like, our uniqueness, it doesn't have to do with how funny we are. I think it's our ability to have, like, discipline and, you know, our ability to tolerate a tremendous amount of embarrassment and pain. Because that's what the first 10 years of stand-up is. And then the rest of it is a different kind of embarrassment and pain. And I think there's a healthy insecurity because I've seen the opposite in comedy and it's really dangerous. I'm the shit, I just killed. When, the, when someone, I can usually tell who is about to lose their entire career <laughs> to a drug addiction or arrogance when they come off stage. Arrogance doesn't work. Bill Burr, Louis CK, Joe Rogan, all they come off stage and like, oh, I should have. Fuck, I should, standing ovation for 20,000 people. They're like, I should have, David Tell, I should have said it. Fuck, I should have said it this way. I mean, it's like they're on the, stressed. Yeah, because they're in, they're competing with themselves. It's not about the validation from the audience. They did it and they wanted, and they see how they can make it better. The validation from the audience, like you don't get points for that. That's just our, us doing our job. So when I come off and I'm like, ah, oh, shit. Everyone's like, how could you be a, you just got, laughs and standing ovations and applause breaks and it's like yeah i don't you don't get points for that at this stage mm -hmm. i need it i should have created goosebumps i should have created awe you know i remember seeing um gone girl or john wick whatever's in the zeitgeist mm -hmm. so i have to go see what it is to know where to plug it in if i need mm -hmm. to in crowd work or anything you know i have to like know what everyone else is reacting to and why and that also helped inform me like okay john wick is the biggest movie People really want to see guns or what, what it's, but then, you know, I start to lose faith in humanity and then you actually go see it and learn what you're talking about. Cause I don't like when people mouth off on shit that they've done no research on and then I go see it. And the whole reason he kills all those people is cause they fuck with his dog. And I'm like, I fucking love this. Okay. Now I love humans again. So much. I think of an artist's job now is to keep your faith in humanity. Cause at least as a comic, cause I have to wake up every morning wanting to make them laugh. There's something in pro wrestling they call the cheap pop, which is like when you go to, uh, if you went to wrestling in San Francisco and the wrestler came out and said something about the local sports team, like, and everybody cheers, like if you reference. And that, what you're describing is the same as a cheap pop. It's like, if I mention, if I plug in John Wick, mm -hmm. it's this relatable thing. And, um, but is that bad? Is it, can the audience? There's no bad, there's no good or bad. I wouldn't do it. You've said, I wouldn't do it in something recorded. I wouldn't recorded. do it, but it does sound, it sounds like a. Um, 
like low-hanging fruit yeah, or like something. a manipulation. And I think for live shows, sometimes I've had to force myself, even though it makes me hate myself after. It makes me go like, ugh, did you really just do like a Charlie Rose or wherever? You know, like I'll look at look up the city before I go, but I think as long as it's something that's not less clever than, and you're playing to the top of your intelligence, but I know I'm doing a local reference just to get that. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, comedians, sometimes we just show up in cities and go, hey, bah, here are my jokes. I like, it does make them feel special. And I know that that's part of my job. I think what's interesting to me is finding a new way to do things. It's like, if everyone does it this way, if everyone's talking about this subject, mm -hmm. I'm not interested in that subject. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's the hot subject. Yes, you could ride that wave. Mm -hmm. It's not interesting to me. Right. What's interesting to me mm -hmm. is something else. I like the oddity of hearing something that I've never thought about before. I like yep. hearing something that makes me really pay attention because like, whoa, this isn't like the other, the song structure is different than I'm used to. The this kind of music is something that's unusual to me. Mm -hmm. It's not more of the same. I like not more of the same. So in general, when I think if there's, okay, there's this technique that everyone can use, you know, if we were getting up at the comedy store and there are gonna be 10 comedians this night, eight of the 10 might mention this thing. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to mention that thing. You shouldn't. Ever. It's, uh, always. It's like when I first started, it was homeless people. Then it was face MySpace. Then it was Facebook. And, you know, I think comedians, you know, have this Too topical. fallacy that, oh, this is airplane food. It's going to make me relatable. Everyone's going to know this reference. But that is coming in with a really arrogant, you know, I think a lot of artists, at least in what I do, TV and stand-up, have this idea that, um, that people are dumb and they're not gonna be able to wrap their head around an esoteric reference. It's like, if you need to use Facebook as your punchline, like, yeah, you're also not taking into account the three comics before you probably already mentioned that, so it's not even a special reference, but also it's like people have to, th they're on it all fucking day. The last thing they wanna do is hear about it again, you know? So, you know, to me, I always say, have snobby setups, like your taste, forget about the punchlines. If you're like, you're writing, don't even, Think about the jokes because the setups have to be interesting on their own. And I started doing all this weird shit where I'll, you know, I was just in New York and I didn't order an Uber. I just like got a cab and I'd like talk to the cab driver. I mean, to me, I'm just paying someone to let me try bits on them or paying someone to sort of, you know, it's also demoralizing because most cab drivers are funnier than most. You're just like, God damn it. You're so fucking, you should have a podcast, <laughs> like, you know, but it's not about being funny. It's about being interesting. Chris Rock, I think, is who said this of uh, the more specific you are, the more universal you are. So as long as you're specific about something no one knows anything about, it's going to be way more interesting than being, you know, funny about something everybody's already heard of because we're chasing that surprise. And I see in your music library, which I've tried to not talk about too much because I know you have to talk about it all the time, but you go from, you know, hip hop to country to all, you know, to all these words or I don't even know the difference between alternative and rock and all those, you know, it's like when people say what's the difference between alt comedy and I'm like funny is funny, you know, you know, to Same. me, country has more in common than most hip hop than it does with rock sometimes, you know, so I'm kind of like, you know, not that versed enough musically to sort of know the genres, but do you tend to take on projects or artists to surprise yourself? Because it seems like you're going like. I, I like it to be interesting. To you. I want to be interested, yeah. I see comics get on stage and they're like, what else is happening? I'm like, why are you bored? 
like you at least, and this is, I've just, I've learned this from, I mean, making mistakes is like, if you're not, if you don't think the joke's funny, why the fuck are you telling it? And that reminds me of point of view. You talk about point of view in your book a lot. And it's something that I, people always say the comics, you have to have point of view, you have to have point of view. Is this, is, how do you know your point of view is yours or, you know, because we're in this crisis of conformity or something you've heard or what's going to make your parents, like, how do you know when it's truly yours? Well, one of the things I talk about in the book is you don't have to worry about it because it's yours. Me and, not worry about something? <laughs> you don't have to worry about it because it's already there. And your point of view is how you experience the world. And you can't project how someone else experiences the world. We don't know. We'll never know. Never know. We only have our own experience. And the way that we can have any sense of relationship with anyone else is to share what we see and then have someone else tell us, well, yeah, I see it like that. Or no, I don't, I see it this other way. That's the only way we know anything is through, mm -hmm. this is how I see it. Mm -hmm. Our only job is this is how I see it. That's our part. That's our part in the world. This is how I see it. And also knowing that it can change. Like I know I don't know anything. I might learn something and have a point of view for a period of time. And then that might change based on new information. I, that's how it's supposed to be. That's how humans are supposed to be. Feels natural. I feel no obligation to be the person I was yesterday. And with new information, I will change my mind three times a day. You talk about all the angle, different angles coming in as a comedian of all the places you could go. Were those always clear to you from the beginning? Yes, I've always felt very overwhelmed by other people's experience. And it's, I think that, you know, I've done a lot of work recently on like ancestral trauma and, you know, epigenetic imprinting. And, you know, I've always really been attracted to neuroscience. I know science is really, the older I get, the more you realize it's all just kind of, <laughs> I did focus groups and I signed up for scientific studies in universities when I was poor. So I know how bogus a lot of them probably are because I just said shit I need to say to make 50 bucks. You know what I mean? Even side effects. Like I did, you know, product, beauty products that you would see in Rite Aid and stuff. And you'd try the, they would send you the product and then you would go in and talk about it. And the people that would talk about it, like I'm actually, I think, responsible for why Neutrogena didn't release like a brush that was like, because I was like, oh, it's hard to wash. And it was like, I had, like I would give constructive feedback that was like helpful, but think about it. They have 3,000 people working at their company and then some broke bitch for 50 bucks caught some problem. So it's like, it's genius for them to do these focus groups. But then you get on a list and they say next week, they're like, oh, L'Oreal is having a focus group. You know, Robitussin is having a focus group. And then the people that were like the dorks that knew you'd get called back the next week for another 50 bucks, we'd all be, and this is like a little bit of a basis for a bit. I like, I'm watching you nod and I'm going, maybe I should talk about this. Like, and then there's like, four or five people that we, we all were in this, you'd see them every week. You know what I mean? Dan and Jocelyn and Rick. And it was just, we'd all get called back. And, you know, the side effects would be like, oh, I always had migraines. So I'd be like, oh, I kind of had a headache, you know, but I had migraines at the time. So there's no way to delineate, but they wrote it down. And then you start to get to know the people in the focus groups. You know, you see them at Starbucks, you see them around. And then, you know, Jocelyn's like, you know, I'm a little dizzy. And you're like, well, you're always kind of dizzy, bitch. Like that's not, I've seen you outside the studies though. Like Dan is always drowsy, dude. Don't put that down. Like this is, it's like the seven dwarves. They're just drowsy, dopey. Like so funny. Dan, I saw him smoking weed before the study. You cannot write that down. Like it's it was really such funny. a ridiculous. And then I would also make money. I was in an acting class with Sean Lennon. Wow. And I have told him this 
and we would hang out. We it wasn't romantic, just like thick as thieves. He would stay at Carrie Fisher's, but sometimes he would stay at my house because it was closer to the acting class. And he would leave t-shirts at my house and I would sell them at Buffalo Exchange because it would be like a Duran Duran, like <laughs> very rare concert t-shirt. And I would go sell it at Buffalo Exchange for like $200. So funny. He'd be like, have you seen my shirt? I'm like, no, I haven't. Must be at Carrie's. <laughs> Crazy, the maid over there. Okay, I have a question based on that. Are you a pathological liar? Um, I'm capable of it. And I, you know, I've, I've talked about this before, but I'm in ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics. It's, it's um, like AA or NA or any of those, but, you know, our drug isn't, you know, heroin or alcohol. It's internal drug cabinet, adrenaline, cortisol, because that turns into dopamine. You know, part of the reason science, studying science helps me so much, because then it means it's not my fault that I'm like this. Uh, epigenetic imprinting, the studies are showing, who knows, science is debunked every two years, but it really serves me at the moment. So the science I do believe of the uh, neurochemicals that the mother emits while the baby is in utero, the baby will be born addicted to. So the same way you're addicted to, you know, a crack baby or an opioid baby, it's, you know, it's true. I mean, kids are being born addicted to opiates, you know, mm -hmm. going through withdrawals. And, um, you know, my mom was definitely like, my dad was cheating on her when she was in utero. I wasn't expected. I wasn't planned. They didn't want me. It was a whole thing. And so, you know, I definitely was born like, I mean, there's stories of me just like crawling off things. I took a quaalude when I was a year old at, you know, one of my dad's mistress's houses almost just, would, I, I mean, I know that most babies would put anything in their mouth, but I think that the confluence of needing that adrenaline and, being so ignored probably had something to do with it. But I was, my dad was a pathological liar and a lawyer, same, same. What's the difference? And I remember one of my biggest mistakes on my last special is I was working on a joke or like a, an argument. I think of it more as like a, an argument, which is where being a pathological liar, having that skill comes in handy, even though I'm not allowed to do it in my relationships or personal life, because I have to pathologically lie to myself that I'll be able to get away with this. It's, it's sort of pathological lying to me. I try to utilize it as a form of delusional confidence, which is something you need to have to think I'm going to go on stage and try to make the argument that phones are not bad for kids. So growing up with these maladaptive behaviors, what I saw, I saw cheating and lying very early, always go the easy way, easy way, which I think because I found myself having to be a pathological liar in order to protect my parents, you know, we were always the kids with, without the right uniform, without the permission slips lined, and we were taught, my dad would teach me, would say, this is what you should say to your mom when we go in, say that we were at the donut store and we stopped and got ice cream, and I'd be like, oh, yes. and I would sell it, I'd have to. So if I could lie to my parents, and I mean, once I got divorced too, I could calm everyone down. And then people were knocking on my door looking for my dad. And I had to go like, oh, he's not here right now. And like, what do you, you know, I had to as a form of survival. But then the things that help protect us as children become liabilities later. But you're like, oh, I have all these fucking superpowers. What do I do? I guess I'll become an actor. You know, I guess I'll lie to myself that I'll be able to be a female comedian. So yes, I believe I have the ability to be a pathological liar. It's a superpower that I learned very young. And, you know, I came to Hollywood. I basically went, I'm going to go get rich there. I had to lie on every resume, every interview. Every, yes, yes, yes. I had to say I've done stand-up in order to do stand-up. To get a loan from a bank, you have to lie and say you have money. No one's going to give money to a poor person. Yes, if you're poor, you have to lie most of your life to get anything. You know, I had to lie to get food. I had to lie to my landlord of why I couldn't pay the rent. Like, yes. Uh, you know, I think that 
the word pathological is like, that's where it gets dicey because I look at someone like Anna Delvey. I don't know if you saw that story. She was this con artist in New York who conned the art world. And you're like, if you're in, if you con con artists, are you really, is it really pathological or are you just playing the game you have to play to survive? You know, I had to go on dates with agents and lie that I was going to see them again to get information I needed to learn how to succeed, you know, but now I can't, I'm not allowed to do it. Sometimes I lie to myself maybe, but they say that we tell like 30 lies a day, just like five minutes away, almost there, just like little lies. I don't even do that. I think comedians were kind of the opposite. We're like pathological truth tellers. We share That's things good. we shouldn't, but sh we shouldn't share sometimes, yeah. you know? Like when you say pathological, I go like, ugh, that means bad. But if you're lying to a liar, is that bad? Yeah, I don't really know. I, I know um, it feels good to tell people what's going on with you. The truth, it, the releasing. It's also the only way that we, it's like uh, if you're in a relationship with someone and you tell them something that's not true, you're not really in a relationship with them anymore. It's like you're not, we're, we're going through life thinking we're in the same movie. And if either one of you thinks you're in a different movie, then we're not really together, you know? It's so interesting you say that because I've had this thing where this aversion to the word lo I love you or the phrase I love you. And I went, okay, what are the forensics on my... You know, it's my job as a comedian to do forensics on why the fuck I have an aversion to something that everyone else likes so much. Is it just the Oscar Wilde thing of everything that's popular is wrong? No, it can't be that, you know, because a lot of popular shit's amazing. But saying I love you, why do I hate that phrase so much? You know, because I saw growing up, someone say I love, hit you, and then they say, but I love you. And then in relationships later, I love you started feeling like after fights, but I love you. It started feeling like, shut up. The sub, I only look at subtext. I love you, I love you. People kind of use it to manipulate. And then I'd see it thrown around like, love you, love you. Like, I love you. It's not always said the way Congress to what it's supposed to mean. So I kind of went, I don't like this thing. Maybe I am like a woke police asshole. Complete, everyone stop saying I love you, it's triggering. And the concept of love just always felt like so much pressure because I don't think I'd ever felt it before. So I didn't know how to give it or what it was supposed to feel like. And it, when people did love me, it just felt like pressure because I need a lot of alone time. And love felt like this smothering, like I feel like you're like addicted, need something from me. And I couldn't handle anyone needing anything from me except complete strangers, where it was a transactional thing where we knew the rules, you know. But how important is self-love to an artist and is there room for a little bit of self? You know, there's such a war on your inner bully, like inner critic, but I think finding harmony between radical self-love for your child, but also going, yeah, that wasn't good enough. You were fucking lazy today and that was sloppy. Is there a way to find the balance? And, and if someone isn't in balance, like what would you recommend they do? I think we can both feel good about ourselves and be critical of the work. Like the work could always be better. It's different when you turn it around and make it, I'm no good. If you say, that set was not as good as it could have been. That's different than saying, I was no good tonight. Yeah, I'm no good. I'm not funny. It's very different than that joke on stage tonight, it didn't get a laugh. Maybe that joke's no good. That's fine. But I will say I'm seeing a lot of comedy uh, in comedians, younger ones, plateau 
because they're blaming the audience. I, I, I believe the audience is never wrong. Yeah. You know, that that's I don't think that's necessarily the case in music. Yeah. But no, I think the audience is never wrong. It doesn't mean that what you're making isn't good. Those things are not automatic. You can make something great and the audience doesn't get it. And that's fine. That's okay. But there's also what I would say, and this is what, you know, I'm so interested in your sort of take on comedians as you've been sort of spending more time with them more closely. I want to talk one more thing about the writer's room in a second, but, you know, usually the times that I come off stage saying that set wasn't good, I've probably gotten huge. It doesn't mean it was like awkward. Usually when something's like awkward or doesn't get laughs, I'll go, oh, I took a risk. Like, that was cool. Like, ooh, like it's so much more interesting to see a successful comic fail <laughs> or try something new. We made an album um, with Dice that was about him bombing, and it's really cool. It's the whole, the whole album was just, he's losing his mind, and the audience is just not laughing. And it's so funny. I bet that's going to be the, to comic. That's the funniest one. It's Brody Stevens. I mean, he's our hero. Is like not going for jokes and just being in that flow of being private and public. If you're able to, like you say, like I say, ride the wave or you say, like chase that lightning, stay with that lightning of like, just stay with that feeling. Because, you know, one of the most powerful things that I look a lot to performance art too. I just, I try to not look to too much comedy because I go like, I'm never going to be able to figure out I'm never gonna be able to emulate what Pryor did. I'm never gonna be able to emulate what Rodney Dangerfield did. I can I can study him all day long, but I don't have his essence. I don't have his pain. Rodney, the, the brilliant joke writing, of course. He was a mathematician with the math, and the it was so airtight. It was so um, you know, it was a Tetris game. You know, when you're playing Tetris, and it just and it just like so satisfying in terms. And as an audience member, you felt so safe in his arms. Rodney Dangerfield, one of the greatest things I think he did was give the audience, you know, the ability to be the funniest person at the office the next day. You know, my dad would pick up women using Rodney Dangerfield jokes, and he was very intentional about that. But I guess on some level that is thinking about a result or the audience liking you or, you know, that's more valuable to me than money that someone, when someone says, oh, I used one of your jokes in my vows, I officiated a wedding because I did a special where I said my def definition of love is being willing to die for someone you yourself want to kill. And people use that in their vows a lot, you know, and that's it's like, really funny. That makes me feel so great that a lot of people can't necessarily in music, you give people the ability to, you know, Huberman actually said this to me once. He was like, you know, there's certain feelings that words can't convey. Music actually, you give people like the vocabulary, the emotional vocabulary. When I'm dating someone now, I just send them songs. You know, do you ever get discouraged by human behavior by, and how do you combat that since you're making things to make them happy? I just focus on what I'm making and hope that people like it, but I don't think too much about big picture things like that. You're just like so present. You won't, you won't go an, a minute ahead. Okay. I'm just going to ask these last questions because I'm going to do an open about your book. Oh, do you do your anger exercise? It's on page 64, the anger exercise. Do you do this often? I don't now, but I've done it. Can I ask anything that came up? This is punching, you're punching a pillow. Pretend it's Nancy Pelosi, whatever you need to do. Punching a pillow for five, five minutes. minutes straight. Yeah, which, with, with a clock. Which by the way, he writes- It's really hard. He writes, this is harder than it seems. I was like, I got this. After the 30, I was winded. <laughs> but then I was angry that I was winded yeah. and I wanted it so bad mm -hmm. that I tried a couple times, but I learned a lot about myself just 
in that yeah. trying to punch it's it. It's interesting. What's interesting about it is when I did it, it was recommended to me and I didn't feel like I had any anger. And the, the purpose of this is to like physically tap into something that allows it to come up beyond your conscious mind. It's any unconscious anger that you have in you. It gave me permission to exercise anger I hadn't that I had repressed. It's like um, yeah. you know, you might not even know you have. Like when I'm in a sour mood, and a real quick hack is just a smile. Like actually just moving those facial muscles will already send a signal and you're already like, okay. And can I ask what, do you remember any, did something specific keep coming up? I don't remember. It was so long ago, but I remember just writing a lot and I, and I don't remember what it was about. And now I feel like everything I wrote down, I need to write a joke about, you know, cause it's all stuff that has been haunting me. And I think that a lot of being an artist, tell me if, does this feel right or wrong is being haunted by uh, I feel like I'm haunted by something and I won't, it won't stop haunting me until I get it out and so that it can haunt other people. Could be. You know, I think that what I'd say for people listening, like, you know, this book, I've read books before about creativity and I'm like, mm, this is so specific to that person. Like you write it in a way that no matter how neurodivergent you are, how different your circumstances are, like you can make this apply to you and you refuse to make things prohibitively specific. Yeah, it's not specific at all. It's it's general on purpose. It's I like mean, idiot proof. <laughs> like it's like I couldn't find a way to go, well, this doesn't apply to me. Therefore, because I think a lot of times we're so insecure, scared to try that we're looking for obstacles just mm -hmm. so that we don't have to take the risk of failing. Yeah. And reading this whole thing, I was like, I can't find anything to be like, well, that's just him because he's a man and he's already really successful. So I don't have, you know what I mean? It's like, I think a lot of times our brain or trying to protect us from taking a risk. Yeah, this is just an invitation to open your mind up and try things without telling you what to do at all. There's nothing in the book that tells you what to do. Can I read some of my anger stuff Please, to you that came sure. out? Because this anger exercise, like it was really intense. This again, this was an exercise where you beat a pillow for five minutes straight. And then afterwards you take a pen paper, make sure you have enough paper because a lot's going to probably come out and just say everything that comes, just write down everything that comes to you. Don't overthink it. It's like when we do the word association exercises, like it's a little bit like that. Just have it come out. So after banging the pillow for five minutes, which I think I was beating myself up more than I was beating the pillow up. Like even witnessing your own inner monologue while you're doing it. I'm a piece. Why can't you do this? Why you're out of shape? Why, you know, but I got, I definitely, I, did, I got emotional. I did start crying because I just was like, even thinking about it, because I was just like so mad at myself for being so mad at myself, you know? Because it's just like, why the fuck do I need to be perfect? Like I'm banging a fucking pillow. Like who did that to you, you know? And I think we talk a lot about anger, but after losing both parents, you know, which I'm relieved for, I think a lot of being an artist is like grieving responsibly. I don't care what you've been through. You don't get to mistreat people. You don't get to hurt people. If you hurt yourself, that's not great either. But I've been trying to find a way to grieve because, you know, Instagram, there's these memes, love yourself. <laughs> I can say grieve responsibly. People are like, how bitch? And just the act of like, you know, I, I, I'll send you this video. I don't know if you've ever seen screen painting <laughs> where you paint and scream at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds funny. It's the funniest shit ever. I watch it all the time. For 10 years, I watched this video of this dude just like, ah! 
ha ha. And he's dead serious. He's like, so then you just put the the uh, brush on the canvas and ah, it's like hilarious. And then I was like, maybe I need to start screen painting because I like you, I don't feel angry. Like I feel frustration. I feel a lot of feelings, but I tend to not feel anger. And then hitting the pillow, I, a lot came up and a lot of sadness came up. And then I just put a pen to paper. I tried to not overthink it. I, I really tried to not edit anything. And I was also embarrassed. My hands, I haven't written with a pen in s that much in so long. I was like, oh my God, this is like, <laughs> it's like carpal tunnel. Whitney's anger exercise. What came up first after banging the pillow for five minutes. Hypocrites, animal abusers, which by the way, will you grade me on my, um, is this right? And I realized how much I needed to be perfect in my anger exercise. And then I got angry about that. Hypocrites, animal abusers, impossible beauty standards, SeaWorld, zoos, 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 algorithms, people who complain about algorithms, <laughs> parents who take their kids to zoos. That just kept coming up. People who take their kids to zoos. What are you doing? <laughs> people who get bent out of shape when someone says the word retard. People who don't see their protect they're projecting self-righteous indignation addicts, hall monitor dorks, the guy who said Andrew Dice Clay was problematic because I had just heard it, horse carriage business in New York City, white women who are more toxic than the white men they call, quote, trash, people who use me, people who don't use me. That's big. Because that means I have no worth. That's big. If someone doesn't want to use me, then I don't have anything valuable. That was big. Mm -hmm. Cobalt mines. <laughs> Gotta stop listening. Rogan, stop texting me. Uh, people who forget America is barely 300 years old. America's like a kid. It's like a baby country. This is the first time it made me think of America as like a toddler who's kind of screwing up a little bit, but it just needs time to, I don't know. I just, I, I had a compassion for America being young for the first time. I hadn't thought about it like that before. Comics from other countries who got successful by criticizing America. <laughs> That's, That's really funny. Wild. Printer toner. Coconuts. 200 people a year die via coconut. Pepsi. Did you see the Pepsi documentary? Pepsi Points documentary? Pepsi, give the guy the fucking jet. Bad corporate business, like corporations, like unfair corporate practices. Uh, corporations slash government. Like I was in like a state. I was just like writing. Mm -hmm. I can't even read a lot of my, that's like not even yeah. my handwriting. Yeah, yeah. That's not even my handwriting. Someone who wants to stay in a problem and not solve it. People who go to the problem for the solution. My reliance on Wi-Fi. The way who I am when I can't get Wi-Fi. Like, like I am so mad at that person. An impending earthquake. People who sep can't separate art, art and artists. The Mona Lisa, is it that good? <laughs> I think I'm angry at things that get attention that don't deserve attention. I'm like, why? I saw a photo of people standing in line crowded around to see the Mona Lisa. And I'm like, Brian Simpson is a comedian in Austin right now at Rogan's Club. That's who you need to go stand in line to see. I think I get mad at shit that's so old that I'm kind of like, do you really think that's good? Or do you just, did you hear it was good? You know, I get annoyed when I think people are being zombies or robots. The show Euphoria. Nudity in shows is cheating. People who think I lie about my age since I'd love to, but don't. <laughs> my dad and mom's alcoholism, addiction in general, lack 
of teaching meditation in schools, proms, homecoming, toxic high school. I've never thought about it. Like I've never been like prom was traumatizing. Like why are schools forcing kids to fuck? It's like to date. It's, it's nuts. Uh, circumcision, arrogant doctors, people who ask shit to you that they could Google. <laughs> it weighs on me. Someone's like, oh, I want to come see your show. Where is it? Whitneycummings.com. Like, why are you, I'm, I'm very uh, conscious about the finite amount of energy I feel like I have a day. I call it energy dollars. I have 100 energy dollars a day. I can't give you this dollar, dude. I'm already at 60 and I might have already borrowed from the next day. Like it's kind of a philosophy I live by. Anyway, people who pretend to help just to seem helpful, performative helpfulness. Ugh, small talk, energy vampires. And that's as far as I got. That's pretty good. Because I started getting really emotional that like, that like I think I started thinking like, okay, all this, people that pretend to help, energy vampires, like did I do this to myself by becoming a known person and can I ever go back? Cause like I worked so hard to get famous cause I went, oh, that's gonna get my dad's attention. And then once I realized my dad died, I was like, okay, shit. Now what the fuck do I do? Now what? Now what? I was like rudderless. I was like, okay, well, if we're in a simulation, I might, he might be up to Like I, I was like, I, I had to go like, well, he's probably in another universe. He's not dead and he might be watching this universe. So I still need to be funny, you know? And then I was like, oh, I'm gonna be of service. I'm gonna be of service. And I'm gonna have my stand-up have messages in it and codify, you know, like make people laugh, lubricate really rough things and be of service. And then um, I was like, oh, the more famous you are, the bigger platform. If you're funny, you're of service. You don't have to go past that. I needed a, some kind of permission to keep doing something that I think boiled down to me to stealing the limelight of narcissists. So I grew up with narcissists. And if you were funny or took attention, they would be like, my mom competed with me and my sister. If we stole attention from her, from my dad, she would be mad at us. So I think I, I need permission to be the center of attention or else I'm just like a, taking it away from someone else. Cause I know how good attention can feel when you haven't had it. So on some level I go like, I don't want to take the attention from someone else. Cause like, People need it so badly right now. You see, I just see this epidemic of people that need to be heard and they're going so far as to say, you can't say that and you can't do that. And I just, it boils down to me going like, oh my God, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to need attention so bad that you're gonna do a desperate thing. I used to hurt myself as a kid just to get attention. I would try to throw myself off things. I remember sitting with a knife. I didn't wanna kill myself. I was just like, when I'm hurt, I get attention. When I'm perfect, I get attention. When I break something by accident and I get attention, it's not the, like, and I remember like sitting, I'd like be alone in my house, like this, I feel like this would be mad. They'd be mad about this. That's the stuff they drink at night that makes them go tie tie. Like not, don't break the wine. I remember being very specific about like, I need to break something cause, and pretend I'm hurt. And I would do it a lot, wow. you know, pretend to be sick, whatever you could do. And then, so now as an adult, I want to go, I want to make sure I'm not fucking doing that. I don't want to do that selfish thing. This has got to be, you know, you said it in the last line of the book. It's just got to be about the art. It cannot be, for me, I'm like, this can't be about my ego. This can't be about me. This can't be about me wanting to make another female comedian that was rude to me, showing her, like, I got to really vet my motives because those will come up sometimes. And I'll go, if I don't have a pure motive, I can't make something pure. 
but I can't stress enough about how even a brain as chaotic as mine was able to just focus on these real, because these days there are people like getting an ice bath, like, okay, I don't, I can't, that's a lot for a lot of people to just, all you need is a quarter to flip. Like just getting back to basics. I think humans, you need to get a robot to help you with your creativity and get Neuralink. It's like, just find a quarter. You don't need anything. And then my favorite thing about the quarter exercise, when I flipped the coin, I hadn't had a quarter in a while. I have them around, but everything's digital now, money, whatever. And I flipped the coin and then I realized I'm shooting my special this year. Cause I was like, I shouldn't. It made me realize how much shame I was. You make too many specials. You, you made a special a year ago and don't make another one too soon. You know, whatever. All these fallacies that a great special should take a long time. Not necessarily. This shit came to me so fast. And this book has just helped me have so much more compassion for myself. And you're making me realize like, I'm like watching me talk about comedy must be so stressful for him. But we don't have like producers. We don't have like someone to kind of go, yeah, do that or don't do that. Like we kind of, I think a lot of times feel like we have to be our own producer, director, everything and our own critic. And I think a lot of the best comics like are really hard on themselves. And I think finding the balance is a tricky one because I just never want to be self-indulgent. Understood. I'm going to set you free. Should we wander? We should. Let's wander. Pleasure speaking to you today. 